Hello and welcome to edition number 1875 of the Whitney Talking News, which we are recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday the 5th of August 2021. I'm Bridget Walton and I edited this edition. And I am so sorry that those of you who are expecting to receive pouches last week didn't get them. Unfortunately, they were in the bag waiting for the post office to collect them and they weren't collected. So we're very sorry about that and we've got a better system for today so you will definitely get a pouch this time. But of course, some people will have been able to listen by using the other methods, listening online and so on. But that's a glitch that we are very sorry about. Now tonight, beside me at the recording controls, we have Peter Brading. And this week we have items from Burford, Chipping Norton, Whitney and elsewhere in the locality. Our readers are Alan Ravel and Valerie Palmer. So let's have our first story, which is about planning going round in a circle and coming back to an answer proposed years ago, just about when I was moving to Whitney. And it's read by Alan. And the headline on my article says £13.9 million road scheme set to ease town congestion issue. And the story is councillors have given the green light to a scheme aimed at easing chronic traffic congestion in central Whitney, at the same time as supporting the building of hundreds of new homes on the outskirts. Traffic experts have whittled down 33 options to one to turn the A40 Shores Green Junction over Oxford Hill in East Whitney into a four-way junction. Oxfordshire's County Council Cabinet has this week given its seal of approval. Whitney Councillor Duncan Enright, Labour Whitney North and East, said, Whitney is the fifth largest town in Oxfordshire, but we often get overlooked. What we want to do here is to take a big step towards Whitney becoming a town which is pleasant and easy and safe to walk and cycle, and also to make sure that public transport has excellent routes to our beloved city of Oxford and elsewhere. Mr Enright referred to an air quality canyon problem in town on Bridge Street, which is often clogged up with the 29,000 cars and lorries that use it every day. We want to lay that platform for an improved town by making changes to the periphery and this is one of those key changes, he said. The A40 Access to Whitney scheme has three main benefits according to a report to the Cabinet meeting. According to Council officers, the scheme will have three main benefits, reducing congestion and improving air quality in central Whitney, improving access to the A40 from the northeast of the town and supporting the delivery of planned housing growth in Whitney as set out in the West Oxfordshire Local Plan 2031. The West Oxfordshire Local Plan proposes around 19 sorry 15,950 new homes by 2031 with 4,702 of those in the Whitney area. Of that, there are two strategic development areas in Whitney earmarked for 1,400 homes on one site and 450 on another. 
The road could start being built in the middle of next year and take one year to finish. The decision gives council officers to use compulsory purchase powers, if needed, to buy the land needed for the project. And Valerie has another story about an unresolved traffic issue. Yes, the headline on my article is Town's ban on HGV traffic to remain for six months. A ban on HGVs in Burford will continue to at least February, it has been decided. The Burford Experimental Traffic Regulation Order, ETRO, is for vehicles weighing more than 7.5 tonnes. An Oxfordshire County Council report provides an interim update on the scheme following the end of a public consultation that drew to a close in February. Using the report and officers' recommendations, the Council's Cabinet Member for Travel and Development Strategy, Duncan Enright, decided to continue with the ban until February to allow for further monitoring this autumn. Mr Enright said, My decision is we should go ahead with all these recommendations. We want to help our equestrian firms with transport and livestock transport too and get more details such as extra data on where the HGVs are going. Let's hope we can come up with a scheme that is better for all. A final decision on the scheme will now be made in January. The ban is designed to promote road safety, reduce damage to roads and buildings and cut congestion. Speaking at the council meeting yesterday, County Councillor Andy Graham, who represents the Woodstock Division, said the ban was however having an impact on the town. The effect of the increased number of HGVs in Woodstock continues to be significant. Like Burford, Woodstock has a significant number of listed buildings. Some of the pavements in Woodstock are already very narrow and dangerous for children walking to school. Air pollution is also a constant worry. The Burford ban is not the answer. The council's leader, Liz Lefman, said more information and data on where HGVs were rerouting was needed. The council report, however, states that there has been little change in the number of HGVs in Perford High Street. It read, When referring to the success criteria, the interim data shows that overall HGV volumes at Burford, when comparing 2019 with 2021, do not meet the 50% reduction criteria. The same volume of HGVs is recorded at A361 Burford before the ETRO was implemented, as there has been after. This data appears to show the ETRO has made no difference to the total volume of HGVs traversing Burford High Street. The consultation, which ran from July of last year to February, saw 395 responses received by the Council. Of those responses, 180 were in support, while 213 objected or had concerns about the impact of the ban. Two responses were neither in support nor objection. And our next story is from Chipping Norton and concerns plans for a new cinema, which I'm delighted to say has the the headline... The Real Deal. 
spelt with a double E in real, of course, and being an ex-newspaper man, it delighted me to read that. So the story says, plans for a new cinema and flats in Chipping Norton have been approved after concerns over pedestrian safety were resolved. In December, an application for the cinema in Chipping Norton's High Street was withdrawn due to highway and heritage concerns. West Oxfordshire District Council has now given the green light for a two-screen cinema with 46 seats and 44 seats run by the living room cinema business. Above those screens will be five flats on the first and second floor, which are described as Airbnb-style apartment suites. The rear extension will be remodelled to create five residential apartments with with the construction of a new block, seeing a further three flats. There will also be a 14-space car park. A planning statement reads that compared with the previous application, the proposal is the same in substance, except that eight of the 13 service departments are now proposed as residential units. The statement adds that concerns about pedestrian safety have been addressed with the provision of additional footway width at the site frontage through setting the shop front further back. In a consultee comment, Chipping Norton Town Council gave its support. It said... We are very pleased that the developer and operator want to invest in our market town in these difficult times. This building, having sat empty for a prolonged period and located at the entrance to the town centre, has given a poor impression of the town for years and this new project will bring much needed revitalisation. New ventures such as these will give residents from the area added reason to come to Chipping Norton and spend their money in the town rather than in cinemas, pubs and restaurants further afield. We are pleased too that the theatre and cinema are working together over the long term. The cinema will be located at the former Harper's Hardware Store with 29 High Street being a Grade 2 listed building while 30 High Street is locally listed. It is proposed that the cinema will show four films each day with three during off-peak periods. Anticipated start times for films are noon, between 2.30 and 3, 5.30 and 6 and The Late Show at 8.30pm. Vandalism hits estate bus depot five separate times. Repeated break-ins and vandalism nearly put paid to a new community bus depot on Whitney's Smith's estate. Since moving into the derelict building on Windrush Valley Road in mid-June, Charitable Bus Cooperative, West Oxfordshire Community Transport, WOCT, has seen its premises broken into on five separate occasions. Vandals have smashed walls, sprayed liquids, ripped out electrical wiring, started fires and sprayed graffiti. Andrew Lyon WOCT operations manager said we're desperately disappointed that this keeps happening especially as we're only here for the benefit of the local community we're just a voluntary organization so many people have worked hard to get this off the ground a lot of work has gone into it they did tremendous damage I think they've been using it as a sort of den to drink and smoke and socialise. To them, we are taking it over. But that's no excuse. 
The building, leased from sanctuary housing, served as the estate office for Smith Industries, which employed about 2,000 people at a factory in Burford Road until 2001. It has stood empty for years, and there has been an effort by residents and county councillor for Whitney South and Central, Andrew Coles, to bring it back into use. Mr Coles said, The biggest frustration is that this is a small community project. This building was derelict for years, so us turning it, turning it into a bus depot was a double benefit for the community. The building as it was reflected negatively on the area. Mr Coles has used some of his councillor priority fund to support repairs and refurbishment. Passenger Jill Dean, who has lived on Smith's estate for 65 years, said, The bus is an absolute lifeline for many who would otherwise be lost without it. I take the bus two or three times a week into Whitney for shopping or if I have to pick up a prescription. It hasn't affected the bus service, luckily, because we'd be bamboozled without it. For a small charitable cooperative, the vandalism could have spelled the end. But neighbours have come together and firms offered their services for the building to be cleaned, repaired and refurbished. Mr Lyon said, The response has been really heartwarming. From feeling like wanting to give up when we saw the damage to being spurred on to finish the project. I was absolutely distressed, but somebody put it on Facebook and lots of people offered their services to us and that made me feel less disappointed. WOCT is run by volunteers and operates six bus routes in West Oxfordshire, including the 215 on Smith's estate. It hopes to move it to the depot by next week. Thames Valley Police, which increased patrols after the incident, was asked to comment. Ducklington Lake Death. An inquest into the death of a girl who drowned at a Whitney Lake last month will be held in November. Nicole Sanders, aged 13, died on July the 18th after getting into difficulty at Ducklington Lake in Whitney. This was heard by Oxford Coroner's Court last week. She died at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, having been rescued initially from the lake. Senior Coroner Darren Salter gave the cause of Miss Sanders' death as cardiopulmonary arrest. The matter was adjourned for a full inquest on November 18. Paying tribute to her daughter last week, Mum Amanda Holmes told the BBC, Nikki was so sassy, she had a wicked sense of humour, she would do anything to help any of us, she was absolutely brilliant with her youngest siblings and she was a good friend. Now, footballers take to field in memory of a tragic twin, Ollie. Footballers helped raise thousands for charities aimed at preventing men's suicide in memory of a talented centre-back who took his own life. Painter and decorator Ollie Cousins, 32, died in January 2020 when he was struck by a train in Shipton under Witchwood. A year and a half on from his death, nine teams came together in Oxford to play in his memory and raise thousands for charity. His identical twin brother, Scott, 
who organised the charity match, said, Ollie loved football. He was a really big football fan. West Ham fan Ollie played as a centre midfielder or centre back for various teams, including Whitney Town. Scott, a 34-year-old builder from Whitney, has previously spoken about how a part of him died with his brother. Speaking at the football tournament at Barton Park Community Pavilion on Saturday, he said approaching others for support in the wake of his brother's death had helped him. I'm in a much better place. Money raised from the event will go to support the Lions Barber Collective, an initiative that trains barbers to support clients who may be struggling with their mental health. Lions Barber Collective volunteer coordinator Leanne Hughes, a hairdressing lecturer at Abingdon and Winter College and Whitney College, said of the barber's chair, "It's a non-clinical and non-judgmental safe space." What we find is men don't go to professional clinical places like the doctor's surgery. Most men go to the barber every two to four weeks. You build up a different type of relationship and a good client rapport. Clients do divulge so much, from things like first dates and prospective first children, to other things like marriage breakups or deaths in the family. The pandemic has had an effect on everybody, and in many different ways. We did a lot of training throughout the pandemic. I feel we gave a lot of barbers the tools to be able to go back to work and deliver their services with a different aspect to it as well. Next story: the headline is "Daughter Leads Tributes to Teacher Who Died in Crash." The daughter of a retired teacher has led tributes following her death in a car crash. Sheila Shirley, aged 72, died in a collision on the A417 Stamford Road, close to Stamford in the Vale, near Farringdon, last month. A farmer's daughter, Mrs. Shirley was born in Devon before moving to Oxfordshire, where she married her husband Dave. The couple lived in Balking, near Farringdon. With Mrs. Shirley working as a special educational needs teacher for most of her career at Tower Hill Community Primary School in Whitney, and then Ducklington Primary School, she had previously been an HGV driver. Her daughter Cara Terry said her mother was adventurous and busier than ever during her retirement. Even though she was seventy-two, she was young at heart and cheery," said Mrs. Terry. She was adventurous and loved to travel, always going on holiday and to live music events. She was involved in the Women's Institute and the local church, and had many friends far and wide. She was full of life and glamorous. She'd be out walking every day and loved going for dog walks. She had a great affinity with all animals. The following deaths are announced in this week's Whitney Gazette. On the twenty-third of July, Iris State, Nay Hatter, aged eighty-six, and also Peter Walsh of Burford, aged sixty-eight. On the twenty-fifth of July, Rex Anderson, aged seventy, and no date given, James Fraser Buchan, known as Fraser, aged seventy.
We send condolences to family and friends. And two shorter items next. The first one is headlined Bursaries from Palace. A total of 20 local charities, organisations and good causes are set to benefit from a £50,000 charity and community bursary set up by Blenheim Palace. The bursary is available to all charities and organisations based within a 20-mile radius of the Woodstock Stately Home. Among groups receiving funds ranging from £200 to £5,000 are Coombe Village Hall Committee, Stonesfield Outdoor Gym, Freeland Baby and Toddler Group, the Plunkett Foundation, Sustainable Woodstock, Edward Field Primary School, North Lee Roman Villa, Begbrook Orchard and Aspire Oxford. Applications for next year's bursary will open in November and close at the end of January 2022. For more information, visit blenheim.org slash community slash charity dash community dash bursary. My second piece, Star Striker Marcus supporting Tesco's new food scheme. Tesco customers in Oxfordshire can help to provide millions of meals to feed children this summer and beyond, thanks to a new scheme. To help ensure children do not miss out on meals, the supermarket chain will make a donation for every piece of fresh fruit and veg bought in its stores from July 19th to August the 8th. The three-week campaign aims to provide up to three million meals for Tesco's charity partner, Fair Share, to redistribute to charities and community groups supporting children. Campaigner Marcus Rashford, MBE, who is supporting the scheme, said, We all have a role to play in the community. While collectively we have made progress, numbers are continuing to rise of children going without meals. The Buy One to Help a Child scheme builds on Tesco's existing food redistribution program with Fair Share, which last year saw Tesco provide more than 29 million meals of surplus food. Free school holiday meals on leisure play schemes. Children visiting leisure centres this summer will be able to claim a free meal. West Oxfordshire District Council's WADC Leisure Management Contractor, GLL Better, has signed up for the government's holiday activities and food programme. The scheme provides a meal not only to children who receive free school meals, but to all families which register. John Busby, Better's Partnership Manager, said, The programmes we are providing this summer will give the families really happy holidays this year, whatever their income level. They bring together the best that better can offer and will equip children and their families to eat healthily when the holidays are just a memory. Better leisure centres in the district will also be providing physical activity sessions and workshops on nutrition. Jane Doughty, WODC's Cabinet Member for Customer Delivery, said, This is a fantastic initiative which teaches our young people the importance of healthy eating as well as exercise. It will also encourage parents to take their kids to our leisure centres during the school holidays, knowing they will have a good meal as well as having fun. See 
playways.com to register. Second item is housing developer warns children not to go out sightseeing, spelt S-I-T-E. A home builder is warning children in Oxfordshire about the dangers of playing on building sites. David Wilson Home Southern is warning young people that although new homes developments under construction may look like exciting places to explore, they can be extremely hazardous. Campbell Gregg, Managing Director at David Wilson Homes Southern, said, Developers like ourselves are building more new homes at sites all over the country. But until they are completed, these places can be dangerous. Now restrictions have eased and we're able to venture further afield. Children should be told to stay away from construction sites. Whilst we do watch out for youngsters during the day and secure our developments at night, we would like to ask parents to ensure the safety of their children during the holidays, especially if they live near an active building site. The home builder hosts site visits for children when possible and holds regular safety talks for schools close to wherever it is building new homes to encourage site safety and highlight the hazards of playing on or near construction sites. To combat the challenges of not being able to invite school pupils to its developments to learn about site safety over the pandemic, the House Builder has created a series of interactive videos. Cycling Relay for Muscular Dystrophy UK will ride by. Researchers are training to pass the baton for a cycle relay team riding 380 miles between the UK's leading neuromuscular centres. The team from the Muscular Dystrophy UK Oxford Neuromuscular Centre are preparing for the Duchenne Research Rally, a three-day ride from August the 12th to the 14th. The event is organised by the parents of 12-year-old Will Taylor from Cumbria, who has Duchenne muscular dystrophy, to raise money for the Muscular Dystrophy UK. The relay will fund research into treatments and cures for the muscle-wasting condition and is the latest challenge by Will's father, Sam Taylor, and his team, who have already raised more than £100,000 for MDUK. In 2015, the family did their first bike ride, cycling from John O'Groats to Land's End, raising more than £25,000. And in 2017, they rode, swam and ran from coast to coast, east to west, across the UK, raising £57,000. Mr Taylor said, We are very grateful to the Oxford Neuromuscular Centre for welcoming the team. It is a huge, huge challenge in anyone's book, but it is very achievable in a group with everyone on road bikes. It would be very difficult on mountain bikes and we should have the wind behind us this time. Professor Dame Kay Davis, a director of MDUK Oxford Neuromuscular Centre, said, Congratulations to the Duchenne Research Relay team. The funding of research by MDUK over the last few decades is the reason we are so close to an effective treatment of DMD. 
Suzanne Driffield, MDUK Regional Development Manager for the North of England and East Midlands, said, Sam's challenges are not for the faint-hearted. These are gruelling events which require immense planning and training. All the money raised will go directly to the MDUK Duchenne Breakthrough Research Fund, which funds pioneering research into treatments and cures for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Please support Sam's team as they take on this incredible challenge and donate if you can. The team will pass through Oxford on August the 12th after cycling from Great Ormond Street Hospital and heading to Bromsgrove in Worcestershire, a distance of 130 miles. You can donate at justgiving.com. Now, we don't have much of a notice board, but we are able to wish happy birthday on the 7th of August to Mrs Pat Thompson of Whitney and on the 15th of August to Mrs Gladys Bushell of Ensham. And, of course, we wanted happy birthday wishes to go to the people who will have been mentioned on last week's recording, which most of you won't have been able to hear. Now, I usually prepare something light-hearted for my article, But this week I'm recommending two non-fiction books, both of which are available as audiobooks. English Pastoral is by James Rebanks, who also wrote The Wonderful Shepherd's Year. I was so impressed by his first book that I didn't wait for the paperback to read the second one, and I loved it so much that I immediately gave hardback copies to my children. He writes about farming in the Lake District, not moaning about the hardship and poverty and insecurity, but not disguising it either. His second book makes the case for mixed farming and encourages us to be thoughtful about the demands we make of the land. He urges long-term planning for the environment, not quick, but ultimately unsustainable profit. The other book, which has been haunting me, is Underland by Robert McFarlane. I read it with awe. Awe for the language and erudition with which it's written. Awe for the humanity and bravery of the man. He takes the reader back to early man and cave art. He explores the community in man-made tunnels and caverns under Paris. He describes the melting glaciers of Greenland. The underland is revealed as a place we don't know, but which influences our lives and which is far more varied than we might suppose. Reading underland is not a comfortable experience. It confirms the destructiveness of much of our activity, but also describes ecstatically the beauty of our world, the joy of companionship, the power of cooperation and the compulsion of man to know more, to explore, to experiment. Robert McFarlane was on Desert Island Discs recently. He is clearly a polymath, but can communicate simply. You may know his glorious books, The Lost Words and The Lost Spells. I think every household should have them. But I also think the two books I have recommended should be compulsory reading especially for any climate change deniers. Now that was two serious books, 
but I'm going to follow Richard Donoghue's example and try to end with something amusing. This edition is edition 1875, and in the year 1875, Edmund Clary Hugh Bentley was born. Among other things, he wrote Clary Hughes, four-line biographical doggerel. Perhaps the best known is, Sir Christopher Wren said I am going to dine with some men. If anybody calls, say I'm designing St Paul's. And now our readers are going to contribute some perhaps more local Clary Hughes. So mine is just about my neighbour reading with me tonight. Valerie Palmer is a real charmer. She's so easy to hear because her voice is so clear. And I can return the compliment because this is about our recent reader. Alan Revell, you surely can tell, is an expert at editing, so we are all benefiting. <laughs> Peter Braiding of Fame Never Fading started our recording and we go on applauding. Now, thinking about Clary Hughes, I did, of course, think of limericks. And actually, my favourite limerick is, there was an old man with a beard who said, it is just as I feared, two owls and a hen, four larks and a wren, have all built their nests in my beard. And Alan and Valerie are also going to contribute some limericks. Well, mine comes from a time uh, long ago when I was in Australia and my children were at school and uh, they used to come home with a, a limerick which they would recite at their primary school, North Sydney Demonstration School. And it was this one. It's always stuck with me. There once was a girl who ate chips and anything else near her lips. She soon grew so wide from the junk food inside that she caused a full solar eclipse. And I actually Googled to see if there was a limerick about the area where I went to school. I hasten to say that I did not go to the famous school at this place. There was an old person of Harrow who bought a mahogany barrow. For he said to his wife, you're the joy of my life and I'll wheel you all day in this barrow. Now, I know not all of you will have had the questions, but maybe some listened online. So this is last week's quiz answers. Question one was, what is the top sheepdog? And it's a border collie. And another doggy question. Question two, how many permanent teeth does a dog have? And the answer's 42. Question three was, which is longer, a nautical mile or a land mile? And a nautical mile. A nautical mile is 1.15 of a land mile. Question four. What is the capital of Finland? And the answer's Helsinki. And question five. Who was Henry VIII's last wife? And she was Catherine Parr. 
And now I have this week's quiz. The answers will be given next week. Number one. Name one of the events which is new to the Olympic Games this year. Number two. Where did Dr. William Penny Brooks introduce a local version of Olympic Games in 1850? Clue. One of the mascots in the Olympic Games of 2012 was named after the place. Three. At which hospital in 1948 did Dr. Gutmann organise wheelchair sports which led to the inauguration of the Paralympics? Four. In ancient Greece, the Olympics were dedicated to the boss god on Mount Olympus. What was his name? Who was his wife and his sister? Five. What are the Roman names for this god and goddess? And finally, six. What is the missing word in the title of the play by Sean O'Casey? Blank and the Paycock. Clue occurs as an answer to a previous question. And tonight we're very lucky to have David Sarbutz here in person from Hanborough Methodist Church. David, it's so nice to see you. Thank you. We British like to talk about the weather. It's too hot, or even it's too cold. In a dry spell, how often do we retort that I wish we had some rain, because the garden needs it? It seems to me that it is a national obsession to talk about the weather with whomever we meet. The Met Office, the organisation which supplies the weather forecast for the coming days, sometimes gets it right, whereas on other occasions its forecasts are not so accurate and that comes in for a lot of stick. In its latest analysis of the UK climate for 2020, the Met Office has shown that climate change is already being felt across the UK. All of the top ten warmest years for the UK in records back to 1884 have occurred since 2002. And for central England, the 21st century so far has been warmer than the previous three centuries. The report went on to say that 2020 was the first year that the annual values for rainfall, temperature and sunshine were all in the top ten in the same year. 2020 was the third warmest fifth wettest and eighth sunniest on record for the UK. We have seen in recent weeks severe floods in Germany, China, extreme temperatures in North America, raging fires throughout the world, which ravaged huge swathes of the Australian bush in the recent years. And these and similar occurrences have left most people convinced of the real impact of climate change. Changing weather patterns and more extreme events seem to be here to stay. Our planet is getting hotter and without immediate and radical action things will only get worse. 
The main players in the global business world are just beginning to take global warming as a crisis that demands urgent attention. The best research tells us that a commitment to economic growth driven by fossil fuels is, quite simply, unsustainable. It seems to be science versus politics and economics, with no clear winner as yet emerging from the conflict. In most areas of life, we are happy to trust the science. When we watch a film on our TVs, phone, internet, or other avenues which are available, we are trusting science. Science is virtually unanimous in attributing the global warming to the impact of human industrial activity. It is strange, then, that our political and economic leaders are unwilling or unable to act. Environmental concern is new, because it is not only that we are realising that it is necessary, but past generations of humans have not had the same impact on our planet and were unaware of the damage we are doing. But concern for the creation is there in the Bible from the very beginning. God placed humanity in his original paradise to work and take care of it. We are free to till the earth and live off its produce, and ultimately our whole life depends on its fruit, which is so generously provided for us. Each one of us, in a small way, can make a difference to climate change. So may we act in ways which prefer, sorry, will preserve God's wonderful creation for future generations if we and others do not act now. I fear that the future looks grim, but with God's blessing and God's care, this earth will remain for years and years to come. May God bless you. I made a mess of all that, I'm sorry. Thank you, David. You've given us a lot to think about. So it's a very exciting time of the year for some of us. Uh, It's the return of the football season this weekend. Not so exciting for others, I will concede. This item is headlined, Boss Braced for Emotional Day. Carl Robinson expects Oxford United's fans to create a special atmosphere on Saturday when the U's play their first game of the season away to Cambridge. The U's will be backed by a sold-out away end at Cambridge United after the remaining seats of their 1,400-seat allocation were snapped up. It is the first chance for United supporters to watch their team on the road since the 3-2 win at Shrewsbury Town on March the 7th last year, six days before football was suspended due to the coronavirus pandemic. Robinson will watch from the stands as he serves the last game of a four-match touchline ban, but he is nonetheless excited to experience a travelling used support again. United's head coach said, The wall of yellow is back. I can't wait. I can't do this in a Liverpool accent, which Robinson has, but there we are. I'm devastated I'm going to be in the stands because that moment will be quite emotional. I'm one of the... 
Well, one of the big signs of, of managing and playing in this country is the away support that our teams get, and it's far better than anywhere else in the world. I can't wait for that moment the players step onto the pitch. United's initial 1,100 allocation of tickets sold out on Saturday morning, with an additional 300 tickets going in just 48 hours later. It came as the club confirmed they will be allowed full capacity at the Kassam Stadium from the start of the season. The U's welcome Charlton Athletic on Saturday, August the 14th, in their first home game of the League One campaign, with tickets going on sale uh, this week. It will have been 533 days since the ground last had an unrestricted capacity for a 2-1 win over Southend United on February the 29th, 2020. After getting the all clear from the area's safety advisory group, United's managing director, Niall McWilliams, hopes the game can be a memorable occasion for home and away fans. He said... I want to thank our team behind the scenes who have worked so hard to make this happen. But the most important thing for us as a football club is that we can welcome fans back and be reunited properly. We would love to make a real statement of intent. We will play our part. There will be a few protocols that will need to be in place, but we will also be releasing details of a membership which will save fans money on a ticket and, of course, we will be welcoming back our season ticket holders, who have been amazing, as always. Armed response to seven cases a week. Armed police officers in Thames Valley responded to seven incidents each week on average last year. New figures reveal. Home office data shows Thames Valley police deployed armed police to 350 incidents in the year to March. This was done to, down 12% from 2019-20 when there were 399 firearms operations. Across England and Wales, the number of police firearms operations fell from the second consecutive year to 18,262, down 6% from 19,393 in 2019-20. The latest period saw officers fire their weapons on four occasions, compared to five the year before. The Home Office said the introduction, the reduction in firearms operations last year may reflect the impact of lockdown restrictions in place during the pandemic. It said armed officers are only deployed to incidents where someone else is armed or is considered so dangerous that use of a gun may be necessary. The National Police Chiefs Council said the small proportion of incidents which led to an officer firing a gun was a mark of the quality of training and officers' professionalism. Chief Constable Simon Chesterman, the NPCC's lead for armed policing, said, The discharging of weapons is always a last resort. And I'm proud to see that despite more than 18,000 firearms operations, there were only four occasions when our officers were required to do this. Mr Chesterman also said forces are now better equipped when dealing with operations thanks to an increase in the number of armed response vehicles 
with at least one present at 92% of call-outs last year. As of March the 31st, Thames Valley Police had 240 armed officers, six more than the year before, and up by 70 compared to 2016. And this week's uh, guest columnist in the Whitney Gazette is Andrew Prosser, who is the Green Councillor on Whitney Town Council and West Oxfordshire District Council. And he's writing about a topic which we've already touched on this evening, of course, about climate change, climate crisis. And the headline on his article is, We Must All Take On Climate Crisis Challenges. There is no doubt that we are experiencing more worrying extremes of weather as rising temperatures break records across the globe. Closer to home, as well as record temperatures elsewhere this summer, there has been severe flooding in London and flash flooding on our local streets from surface water runoff and drainage systems that cannot cope. Not only do we need to stop the burning of fossil fuels that are heating up the planet, We also need to adapt more rapidly to an unstable climate. Climate change is making extreme weather events, including heavy rainfall, more intense and more frequent and leading to greater risk of flooding, as well as heat waves and storms. Tackling this can seem quite daunting, but it doesn't have to be so. It mainly requires more effective planning and investment from government and business in the type of infrastructure, including cleaner, greener energy generation and weatherproofed buildings that reduces our impacts and builds resilience to climate change. It also needs the public, that's all of us, to wake up to the scale of the challenge so that we demand much more effective and faster action from government and business. That should include a greater emphasis on community resilience and well-being and less on products and polluting activities that just add to the problem. We also need to upgrade and improve our creaking local infrastructure, which is failing to cope with existing demands. Our building and environmental regulators who influence and control what infrastructure is built need to have sufficient resources and direction from government to do their jobs effectively. Weak regulation has meant that the privatised water industry in England, for example, has been allowed to limit and slow down the investment required to upgrade water and sewage management infrastructure and keep sewage out of rivers. Our local communities in towns and villages along the Windrush, Evenlode and Thames Valley demand faster action to clean up our rivers as well as planning and investment to mitigate the growing risks of flooding and water stress in the region. In a short piece, new facilities at farm attraction for anniversary. Cox Manor Farm is marking a significant milestone after 10 years of being managed as an independent charitable trust. With support from the National Lottery Heritage Fund and other backers, the Trust is launching new facilities to improve the experience for visitors and volunteers. The Whitney attraction has more than 1,000 years of history and offers visitors a glimpse into the past rural life in the Cotswolds. It is hoped that the renovations and improved facilities across the site will encourage a wider range of people to enjoy COGS. 
Practical changes include resurfacing and landscaping the disabled car park, a new bridge and path access from the main car park across the grading, grazing fields, plus refurbishment of the manor house to include new disabled access. The body warns of birds being hurt by pest spikes. Bird deterrents such as spikes and netting on buildings should only be installed by a professional to protect both wild birds and property, a national trade body has said. The British Pest Control Association, or BPCA, is urging the owners of homes, businesses and public buildings in Oxfordshire to ensure they choose a trained and qualified professional to offer advice and install bird-proofing measures when needed. Bird spikes and nets are a non-lethal solution and they should cause no harm to any wild bird when they, but when they are installed properly. However, BPCA have had reports of birds being caught in improperly installed nets and even impaled on dangerous spikes. Wild birds, their nests and eggs, are protected by the Wildlife and Countryside Act 1981, but certain species may need to be controlled for specific reasons, including public health and safety concerns. BPCA members employ trained technicians. They are trained in bird control and will have access to a range of professional use products and tools which are not available to the public. Missing pet owners targeted in scam. Owners of missing pets are being targeted in a new RSPCA scam. Advice has been issued to residents in an Oxfordshire and Oxford neighbourhood watch and in a community newsletter to prevent them from falling victim. It says, We've recently been made aware that scammers are targeting owners of missing pets. They call and claim to be from the RSPCA, that they have your pet, but it's been injured. They then go on to request payment for emergency treatment. By all accounts, the caller sounds very genuine and plausible. Please do not disclose your bank details or make any payments. This is a scam. The RSPCA will never call you in this way. If in doubt, ask for a photo to be sent of your pet. And although it's August and seemingly still summer, despite uh, some rainy weather, uh, Oxfordshire County Council is very quick out of the blocks to tell us about electric blanket safety checks. So what it says is that due to COVID uncertainty, we will test your blankets but you will not be able to visit the test venue, which has happened in past years. Instead, the County Council says, we will collect your blanket from your house, take it to be tested, and then return it to your house. And they say, we will post you a plastic bag and label prior to our collection. The testing is going on in Oxfordshire from the 20th to the 24th of September and from the 4th to the 8th of October. Now, to book your collection, call 01865 895 991. Sorry, I'll say that number again. 01865 
895-999 and press option 1. Otherwise, it's possible to email, and the address there is community engagement, which is all one word, at oxfordshire.gov.uk. While some Oxfordshire festivals have been cancelled, the big festival in Kingham is still scheduled to go ahead from August the 27th to the 29th. Blur Star's Food and Music Bonanza packed farm with crowds and stars in previous years. And basically, it's an illustration of some of the things from previous years where I can certainly recognise Jamie Oliver and uh, Mark Hicks is another chef. The food illustrations look very tempting, I must admit, The sun was shining, seemingly, and there are singers including um, legendary producer and chic musician Niall Rogers, Sigala, and Sophie Ellis-Bexter. And it all looks like a rather fun day out. Well, that's all we have for you this week. But the TNF radio listings will be included at the end. Please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. Please do so as soon as possible, as we sometimes run out of labels and pouches and are then unable to continue our service to you. Remember, if you wish to contact us, just leave a slip of paper in your pouch and we will telephone you. It only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette for the stories we have used tonight. Thanks also to our technical expert, Peter Brading, and our copiers, Valerie Palmer, Peter Brading and Nigel James. They're copying the memory sticks. And thanks to our admin team, who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks you have returned and keeping records of this in our register. And they were Sheila Rickwood... Nigel James, Jenny Wiley and Sharon. And finally, big thanks to the readers, Alan Ravel and Valerie Palmer. I know everyone would like to say goodbye, and so until our next edition, goodbye. goodbye. NF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at this coming week's radio programme, starting with Saturday, August 7th. Just after midday on Radio 4 is a new series entitled The Hangover, in which Felicity Hanna discusses the financial winners and losers of the pandemic. She visits Stoke-on-Trent, where she meets Katie, a self-employed piano teacher who lost around 70% of her income and is having to move and Tyler, a recent graduate who saved enough money to buy his own place. Drama on Radio 4 at 3 is the book of Danielle, 
a woman unwittingly summons a golem, in Jewish folklore an animated anthropomorphic being, to help her escape from the pressures of a catastrophic news cycle. The bottom line at 5.30 on Radio 4 again this week is entitled Sound of the Suburbs. Evan Davis asks whether, with more people working from home and cities becoming quieter, could this lead to a revival of the suburban economy? At 8pm, again on Radio 4, comes Archive on 4 and, well, hello, the release of John McCarthy. It's 30 years since British journalist John McCarthy was released by the Lebanese militia group Islamic Jihad. He now reflects on the day he was released after five and a half years in captivity in Beirut. And then how about tuning into Radio 2 at 9 o'clock for A Beginner's Guide to Hip Hop. Ramesh Ranganathan, For the Love of Hip Hop, a new series, Radio 2, 9pm. On to Sunday, August 8th, in the reunion at 11am on Radio 4, Kirsty Walk brings together four campaigners to discuss how attitudes to marriage have changed. Her guests recall the battle to introduce same-sex marriage in Britain. The Olympics finally draws to a close and at 12 noon on Radio 5 Live, there's a two-hour review to catch up on all the action over the past two weeks as the closing ceremony officially takes place. On Radio 4 Extra at 1 o'clock is What Happened, Miss Simone, Alan Light's biography of a musician and civil rights activist Nina Simone, who died in 2003. Then a choice of music genres in the evening. On Radio 2 at 7pm, Sunday night is music night. Another chance to hear a recent BBC prom from London's Royal Albert Hall in which Elaine Page presents an evening of toe-tapping music from Broadway's Golden Age. The programme features music by Richard Rogers, George Gershwin and Cole Porter. Alternatively, on Radio 3 at 7.30, you can hear live from the Royal Albert Hall, the BBC prom in which Ryan Bancroft conducts the BBC National Orchestra of Wales in Dvorak's New World Symphony, plus the world premiere of a new work by Augusta Reed Thomas. And now time to look at those programmes which are broadcast each day at the same time, Monday to Friday, same time, same radio station, each day. Book of the Week on Radio 4 at 9.45 is Hamilton and Me. Actor Giles Terrera reads from his account of his time in the musical Hamilton. Composer of the Week on Radio 3 at 12 noon is Francis Poulenc. Described as someone who had something of the monk and something of the rascal, Donald MacLeod begins by looking at how the young composer, 1899-1963, was taken up by the fashionable artistic crowd who frequented the cafes of Montmartre. Just after midday, every day, on Radio 4, Monday to Friday, you can hear The Mermaid of Black Conch by Monique Roffey. A fisherman on a Caribbean island encounters a mermaid and helps her to resist the curse that cost her her human form. It's repeated each night at 10.45 as Book at Bedtime. A History of the World in 100 Objects is back on Radio 4 at 1.45 every day this week, Monday to Friday. In this first week, Neil McGregor explores the great empires around the year 1500, from the Inca in South America to the Ming in China and the Timurids in the Middle East. At 7.45 on Radio 4 each night, Incarnations, India in 50 Lives, continues. Monday's programme features the early 20th century artist Amrita Shagil. And finally at 8, Classic FM, all week, the 
Classic FM Concert with John Suchet. Now he showcases each night recordings released recently, from reinterpretations of old favourites to young stars and lesser-known gems. He starts the week with music from Vivaldi, Mozart, Tchaikovsky and Prokofiev. On to Monday, August 9th. At 9am on Radio 4 is the last in the current series of The Patch, in which Jolian Jenkins randomly selects a postcode to visit. Today it's an allotment in Haringey in North London, where Asuka Suka has planted a tree in memory of her mum, who died from Covid aged just 51. Drama at 2.15 on Radio 4 runs over three days, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, entitled Keeping the Wolf Out. It's set in communist Hungary. Bertalan is assigned a new boss and Francisca hears a senior officer from Romanian security is about to arrive at the ministry. 4.30 on Radio 4 comes the curious cases of Rutherford and Fry. This week a look at whether it's possible to make a pizza that contains the recommended daily intake for a healthy human being. In this union, the ghost kingdoms of England, this week Ian Hislop explores Northumbria, home of the venerable Bade and the intellectual heart of the Anglo-Saxon period. Radio 4, 8pm. 8.30, also on Radio 4, Crossing Continents, which tonight focuses on Nigeria's kidnapped children. More than a 1,000 students and staff from schools in northern Nigeria have been kidnapped since December. Maini Jones travels to northwestern Nigeria to try to understand what's fueling this terrible kidnap crisis. You may wish to listen to something a little lighter on Agatha Raisin's murder mystery on Radio 4 Extra. Penelope Keith stars in The Curious Curate at 8.30. MC Beaton's tale about the murder of the village priest. It runs over two nights on Radio 4 Extra. That's Monday and Tuesday. On to Wednesday, August 11th. At 9am on Radio 4 is the fourth and final series of Black Music in Europe. Clark Peters now looks at how black music made its mark on Europe from the 1970s, when the reggae coming out of places like Brixton was inseparable from the political protests of the time. At 11.30 on Radio 4 is What's Funny About, which this week features Goodness Gracious Me. Mira Sial and Anil Gupta talk about their groundbreaking sketch show and discuss the impact the show had on popular culture. Football's back, indeed. Live sport at 7 o'clock on Radio 5 Live with the build-up to Chelsea versus Villarreal in the UEFA Super Cup match which kicks off at 8 o'clock. Finally, for Wednesday, tune into Radio 3 at 7.30 for a BBC Problems with a Difference. The Aurora Orchestra has made a speciality of performing major works entirely by memory and tonight they give their unfettered musicality free flight in the extended suite from Stravinsky's magical modernist fairy tale, The Firebird. Thursday, August 12th. I mentioned the football last night. Cricket enthusiasts will want to tune in to Test Match Special. From 10.25 on Radio 5 Live or Radio 4 Longwave for the opening day of the second test from Lords, England versus India. The drama at 2.15 on Radio 4 is The Pivot, a new play by Hugh Costello set in 2025. The Minister of State for Business Expansion is still sweeping up behind Brexit and her son James, an idealistic young scientist, can't get a job so tries to make a go of environmentally friendly gardening. Then a fictitious virus, South Eastern Asian Respiratory Syndrome, rears its head. Would the government act any differently after the experience of COVID-19? The film programme at four on Radio 4 features Canadian director Alvin Rakoff, now 94, who has just published his memoir, I'm Just the Guy Who Says Action. 
He talks about his career in which he has worked with Laurence Olivier, Judy Dench, Peter Sellers and Rod Steiger, among others, and also a look at the career of Diana Dawes. And lastly, for Thursday, August 12th, a chance to hear another MC beaten Agatha Raisin drama starring Penelope Keith, this time Buried Treasure. Again, it's on Radio 4 Extra, 8.30, Thursday and Friday night. Which brings us on to the last day of the week, Friday, August 13th. The Spark at 11am on Radio 4 is the last in a series of interviews with original thinkers offering new ideas about society. Helen Lewis's guest is science journalist Essan Massoud, who explains what is wrong with gross domestic product as a measure of a country's economic success. The drama at 2.15 on Radio 4 is The Summer Snows, a dramatisation of Christopher Nicholson's non-fiction 2017 work. A writer sets off from Dorset for the Scottish mountains in search of snow. Not entirely sure why. He's haunted by the death of his wife, his daughter has chronic fatigue syndrome and he's recently had a back operation. Tony Blackburn's Golden Hour on Radio 2 at 7pm, guaranteed to bring back some memories with chart hitters from the 50s onwards. And at 8 o'clock, the classic FM concert with John Suchet, we mentioned it earlier on the week, comes to an end after its week-long showcase of recently released classical recordings. Friday, you can hear the first movement of Carl Jenkins' Palladio, Mozart's Sinfonia and Debussy's Fantasia. As ever, may I wish you an enjoyable, peaceful but safe week of radio listening. TNF Soundings.